If such a thing were possible, if such a thing were conceivable that someone could love God so much and love perishing sinners so much that they would be willing to be damned for those people and thus be damned. The Apostle Paul said he would be willing in Romans 9, 3. And the way he put it was like this. I would be willing to be accursed, cut off from Christ, anathema, apa, to Christu, cursed, away from Christ. So the opposite of union with Christ, the utter opposite of union with Christ is to be cursed and cut off from Christ. It was the worst thing Paul could imagine. It was the absolute worst thing he could imagine. The best thing in the universe is to be united to Christ. To be in Christ. To enjoy union with Christ. When this is fully understood, nothing is greater experientially and nothing is greater theologically. If you grasp this fully, you'll have no higher experiences than the enjoyment of this. And nothing reaches higher in theology. Nothing is more comprehensive in theology than this. My message tonight is mainly expository. That is, it's an unfolding of John 15, 1 to 11. And the reason for focusing on this text is that for many, this text was the place where the reality of union with Christ moved from being a doctrine to being an experience. This text figures centrally in the lives of those who have known most deeply what it is to abide in, in the vine, in Christ. Another reason for putting this text here, front and center, is that Hudson Taylor, with whom we will end the conference, and then a Q&A, so the two bookends, as far as messages go, are a message on John 15, 1 to 11, and a message on Hudson Taylor's experience of John 15, 1 to 11. Because Hudson Taylor would say that what happened to him when he was 37 years old was that this reality exploded and left him never the same again. Hudson Taylor was the founder of the China Inland Mission, which today is OMF. And in the middle of the 19th century, he led hundreds of missionaries into the inland of China. 
And in 1869, when he was 37 years old, he came into an experience which left him totally different. He began to drink more deeply and more constantly and more satisfyingly at the spring of John 15, 1 to 11, or at his union with Christ. His son, Frederick Taylor, wrote this in 1932. Hudson Taylor died in 1905. There was, here was a man, almost 60 years of age, bearing tremendous burdens, yet absolutely calm and untroubled. Oh, the pile of letters, any one of which might contain news of death, of lack of funds, of riots, or serious trouble, yet all were opened read and answered with the same tranquility. Christ, his reason for peace, his power in calm. Dwelling in Christ, he drew upon his very being and resources. And this he did by an attitude of faith as simple as it was continuous. Yet he was delightfully free and natural I can find no words to describe it, save the scriptural expression, in God. He was in God all the time, and God in him. It was that true abiding of John 15, end quote. So this passage of scripture has proved enormously important, both in experience and in theology, the articulation of our doctrine and the walking in our doctrine. And that's what I hope happens at this conference for you. I hope your conception of it and its effect on all of theology will become clearer and more deeply. And ultimately, I hope that you will taste and see what this text is talking about. You all more or less have probably, but I come hungry with you that God would speak with power through this passage of scripture and do it in us. That's my longing. So if you have a Bible, please go there with me. Because I have many things to show you, and I will show you. So I'm going to read it, and you follow along. Verses 1 to 11, Gospel of John, chapter 15. I am the vine, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because, the word that, because of the word that I spoke to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself 
unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. In the preceding paragraph, it ends, John 14, 31, with these words. I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. In other words, as Jesus comes to the last hours of his life, he puts the entire ministry, especially these saving hours, under the command of his Father. I do as the Father commanded me. Puts them under the Father's command. The Father is overseeing the whole thing. Jesus will give his life. He will become the bread of life. He will become the water of life. He'll become the door of life. He will become the vine with its saving nutrition, and the Father himself is tending to this, seeing to it all that everything happens exactly according to plan. I am moving at every step in obedience to my Father, and then he says, chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Now that's a metaphor of what he had just said. I'm completing my work to become the life-giving vine for my people. And my father is tending to everything. My father is the vine tender, dresser. He's the farmer. He's moving in this vineyard and he is watching over this vine and its branches to see to it that everything will be accomplished both now in these hours and then as more and more people attach to me, he is the, the dresser of this vine. Now, metaphors are limited in their meaning. If you broaden a metaphor beyond what was intended, it starts saying wrong things. Let me illustrate that from this text. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, 
just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus is comparing our abiding in his love to his, his abiding in the father's love. But the vine doesn't abide in the vine dresser the way the branches abide in the vine. The metaphor doesn't work, nor was it intended to. That's taking it where it wasn't meant to go. So you have to figure out what's the point of the metaphor. That's our first question. What was it designed to show about the work of the vine dresser? All metaphors break down. That's why they're called metaphors. So what was it designed to show? In fact, ask yourself this question. Why did Jesus even give us verse 1? Why did he introduce his father as the vine dresser? Why didn't he start with verse 5? I am the vine, you are the branches. Isn't that what the paragraph is about? We're the branches, we're in the vine, we should bear fruit. If you abide in, we do bear fruit. If you don't, you get broken off. That's what the paragraph is about. Why, why even complicate things by introducing not just branches and vine, but now you've got a vine dresser who's walking around outside this union. Why did he do that? Well, the whole paragraph is not explained by I am the vine, you are the branches. Let's go to verse 2. This verse is the application of verse 1. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the vine dresser, my father, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he, my father, the vine dresser, prunes that it may bear more fruit. So the reason Jesus is building more into the metaphor than branches and vine is because there are two very important works that the vine dresser does. He wants us to know. Evidently, our abiding in the vine and bearing fruit in the vine is helped by knowing something about what the vine dresser is there to do. That's why it's there. What, what does he do? And there are two things that he mentions. Number one, he takes away fruitless branches. And number two, he prunes fruitful branches. So he cuts away the lifeless and cultivates the living. He destroys and he disciplines. Luke 8.18 To the one who has more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be 
taken away. So let's take these two works one at a time. These two vine dresser works, these two father works that are performed in the vineyard outside the union for the sake of the union. And ask, what are they and how do they help us? Verse 2, first half of the verse. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the vine dresser, my father, takes away. I called it a cutting away, a destroying. Why, why did I use words like destroy? And the reason is because of verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. That doesn't come out of the blue. That warning, that horrible, horrible, horrible warning doesn't come out of the blue. It's an extension of verse 2. My father cut them off and threw them there. And they are bundled up and taken to the fire. So I say his first work is judgment. His first work is destruction. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, or six, and it withers, and the workers gather them, and they are destroyed. They are burned. So the first work of the vine dresser is judgment. Some of it now, all of it at the end of the age. Which, of course, raises a problem. Can a branch, a disciple of Jesus, have eternal life in union with Jesus and be lost and burn, which is what it looks like. When I was in college, I was not a Calvinist. I hardly even knew what was at stake. All those great discoveries were going to happen in the next 24 months. They hadn't happened yet. And I read a book called Life in the Sun by Robert Shank, still in print, my senior year, and was shaken. Because whatever else I knew, I loved the doctrine of eternal security. I was a one-point Calvinist <laughs> and didn't know it. Didn't know how everything supports it. Without it, it's not there. And this book said there is no such thing as eternal security and based most of it on verse 2 of John 15. After all, it says every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and consumes in the fire. So it's a branch in me that he takes 
away and burns up. So does that mean you can have union with Christ that's not permanent? It may exist for a little while and then it doesn't exist anymore. Can we be in Christ and then accursed and cut off from Christ? Does Christ not keep his own? Now let's ask the question precisely. Because it doesn't help to be vague. Given what Jesus has taught in this gospel, is he teaching that a person can be born again, John 3, 3, and then lost? Is he teaching that you can be a child of God, John 1, 12, and then be lost? Is he teaching that you can be one of Christ's sheep, John 10, 16, and then not be a sheep anymore? Is that what he's teaching? And the answer is no. And Jesus is laboring in this gospel to say no. Very clearly. God has a chosen people for himself in this gospel. He gives those people to the son. The son keeps those people infallibly. There is a kind of attachment to Jesus, a kind of disciple, a kind of believing that is not saving. And this gospel makes that crystal clear even by the vocabulary that it uses. And the difference between the unreal disciple and the true disciple, to use John's language, is abiding. You abide in me, you prove that you are my disciples. So let me try to show you this. All I've done is assert it. You need to see this because John 15 troubles many people. John 6.37 All that the Father gives me will come to me. All of them. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Then verse 39 of chapter 6. One of the strongest statements in the Bible. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I lose nothing of all that he has given me. But raise it up on the last day. In other words, God has a people before they come to Jesus. Chapter 17, verse 6, yours they were, and you gave them to me. That's why they come. And they all come. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me come to me. And when they come, he never casts them out. I will lose nothing of all that the Father has given me. Not one branch, not one branch will I lose of all that the Father has given to me. Or chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. That's how you know they're sheep. They follow the shepherd. 
if, if they're not sheep, they don't believe because you can't believe if you're not a sheep. That's a quote from verse 26. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. But all the sheep believe. They all come. And when they come, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I and the vine dresser are one. He doesn't cut off any of my own. He gave them to me. These are the strongest possible statements about the security of those whom the Father gives to the Son. I will lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So, back to verse 2. Who is this? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, cuts off, throws in the bundle, goes into the fire. Who's that? The key is to realize that in the Gospel of John, it is made clear that there are believers who are not true believers. There are disciples who are not true disciples. And there is a chosen 12, one of whom is a devil. And Jesus knew it when he chose him. And brought him in. In to fellowship with the vine, to be empowered by the vine, to go out and do mighty works in the name of the vine, Judas. Here's a few examples of believed disciple in Judas. John 8.30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Verse 31, to the Jews who had believed in him, he said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And six verses later, verse 37, he says, I know that you are not the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, except that you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. So there was belief that was not belief. What about disciple? John 6, verse 66. At this, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They were disciples. They were disciples. Many turned back and no longer walked with him. That's a kind of disciple. That's a kind of faith. They had fallen away. So Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. There are disciples and true disciples. There are believers and true believers. There are 12 and the true 12. Listen to John 6, 64. 
There are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So my answer to the question, can a person be born again and be lost? Can a person be a child of God and be lost? Can a person be one of Christ's sheep and be lost? Can a person be a true disciple and be lost is no. The branches that are broken off are the so-called believers. In chapter 2, verse 23, chapter 8, verse 30, the so-called disciples of John 6, 66, and the Judas of John 6, 65. And the explicit link between that constellation of Ideas and this text is verse 8 in John 15. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's the parallel with John 8 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Back to verse 2 and where we were. That was a little detour on eternal security. The reason Jesus doesn't just say, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Let's get on with the paragraph. The reason he doesn't start there, but starts with, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser, is because he has these two great things he wants us to know that the vine dresser does. He takes away fruitless branches, fake Christians in the church. And he prunes true branches. He cuts away the lifeless, he cultivates the living, he destroys, and he disciplines. So Jesus is preparing the church, his disciples. He's preparing us for two things, defection and persecution. Defection from inside, persecution from outside. Sham, he's preparing us for sham people and for suffering. Sham on the inside, suffering coming from Outside, And we've looked at the first one now. Do not fear, little flock. The, the, the betrayers, the fake, will not destroy you. They will be broken off. My father is tending this vine. They will not ruin it. So, fear not, little flock. Yes, there will be defectors. Yes, there will be sham faith. Yes, your churches will have Judases. They will be broken off. Take heart. That's the first thing that the vine dresser does. Here's the second thing. He prunes. Every branch that does not bear fruit, every branch that does bear fruit, 
every true disciple, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So pruning is cutting. It's a sobering picture for a branch. Hebrews 12, 6 and 10 to 11 are the best exposition of pruning I know of. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And we know in the context of Hebrews 12, the pruning, the disciplining is suffering persecution. And back in chapter, or later in, in uh, verse 20 of John 15, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So persecution is is pruning. It's not the only pruning. It's just one pruning. Now that's what Jesus wants us to see the vine dresser does. He judges and he, he disciplines. And here's the new thing. This was quite, quite striking to me. I had not seen this before. He is saying that his ministry to us, the risen Savior's ministry to us, is like a vine with a branch, and, and the life is flowing, and the joy is flowing, and the peace is flowing, and the experience of his fellowship is flowing. And you might think, that's it. That's, that's the sum total of growing in grace. And then he says, no. Outside this, walking around out here in the vineyard is the vine dresser. And this matters as to how this flourishes. Don't begrudge or miss your father's external work on your union with Christ from the inside. He's, he's working on the outside. You're here. This is outside. You're in a room. You're hearing the preacher. That's on the outside. Some of you have diseases. Some of you have troubled marriages. Some of you have troubled churches. That's the vine dresser. Two great, glorious experiences of confidence are to be born. One, Jesus is my life. My father rules the world for me to magni magnify and to intensify and to deepen my enjoyment of Jesus. Nothing comes at me. No wind hits me. No storm hits me. No marauder, no thief comes into my life that the vine dresser loses control of. I hadn't seen the connection between the precious power of my all-ruling vine dresser striding through life with me 
alongside and ministering to my sweet communion with the Savior. He's more jealous of your fruit bearing and your communion than you are. Love his vine dresser work. It is very painful. I think it's not wrong to extrapolate that vine dressers do way more than cut. <laughs> they sh- he shields, he waters, he, he does whatever it takes, right? He does whatever it takes. He wants there to be fruit. This is life. I'll give you an illustration of this from the life of the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 1.8 We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now, all that's an external circumstance, right? He doesn't tell us the details. He just said it was horrible. We were crushed. So heavily were we crushed, we thought, it's over. We're dead. And then he adds this, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That was to intensify your sweet reliance upon him in Christ within. External circumstances serving your internal sweetness with Jesus. That's why the metaphor includes the vine dresser and not just the branches. So, summary of verse 2 is that Jesus is preparing his disciples for defection. There are going to be people who are fake, and they're going to be broken off, and persecution. It's coming, or cancer, or the death of your best beloved, or whatever. It's coming, and that's the vine dresser nurturing the communion with the vine by the branches. I don't need to tell you, I mean, you're, you're pastors, that the sweetest, deepest moments of communion with the living Christ are in dark days. Nobody in my 68 years has ever said, I went deepest with Jesus on the sunny days. Nobody has ever said that to me. Ever. The testimony is all in the other direction. Moments of loss, moments of crisis, moments of heaviness, moments of desperation. Jesus showed up and was precious because the vine dresser knew exactly what he was doing. Now, you would think that the stage has been set for verse 4. Um, abide in me. Abide in me, therefore. I will abide in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So abide in me. The reasoning is all set up, and you'd think, okay, the stage is set. Verses 1 and 2, hit it. Verse 4, abide. Well, it's not, it's not set yet. 
The stage isn't set yet. This is probably um, the most strange thing about this whole text. Jesus has one more thing to put in place before the imperative arrives in verse 4. One more thing to put in place, namely verse 3, and it is the strangest verse in the paragraph. Something had to be put in place that I would call absolutely distinctively Christian. Unlike any other religion, something at the heart of abiding, something at the heart of what it means to live the Christian life. Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. That's really strange. (laughs) I mean, get the flow. Every branch that does not, I mean, this is the end of verse two. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear fruit. Already you are clean. (laughs) That cost me hours. (laughs) I'm just like, John does this all the time. John does this all the time. This is the way he writes. And I think he's just smiling. (laughs) What's he going to do with this? So God prunes you. You're already clean. And you scratch your head. Now, there is something you can't see in English that helps in Greek. But I'm so much a believer that a person with a good English Bible and the willingness to spend hours over a text can see things that they need to see that I don't think you need to see the Greek to see what I saw in the Greek. I'll show you how to do it. Seriously, uh, many of you do not have Greek. I don't want you to feel like, well, I can't see the important things. That's, I want to use a bad word. That's bad. Um, it, um, let's, let's pretend now that you don't know Greek and you're reading this and you scratch your head about the relationships, because you've been taught you should get the relationship between propositions. And you're scratching your head about the relationship between verse 2 and verse 3. And you say, well, I suppose pruning could be a kind of cleaning. So that there's a link, like we say, clean, clear the brush away, clean the brush away. It's not like walk, take a bath to the brush. You just, you know, move it off, get away. Oh, that would, that would work. So this is what your mind is thinking, right? So, so pruning would be get it off, and that's like cleaning. And then he says, already you're clean. So, okay, already you're pruned. Oh, goes both ways. Already you're clean. Already you're pruned. And, and cleaning, 
cleaning, what is what does pruning do? Pruning gets rid of something to make it more fit, more suitable, more effective. And, and so does cleaning. Cleaning gets rid of something, dirt in this case, uh, to, to make it more suitable, more fit, more effective in what it's designed for. A dirty person is going to be as effective as a clean person. So there's this overlap in meaning between pruning and cleaning. And you don't need no Greek yet, just thinking. Just thinking. Take you two, three hours on a Thursday afternoon <laughs> to, to work your way through, but that's what it costs. I, I, I think I came down and said to Noel when I was working on this last week, I can't believe I did this for 33 years. This is hard. <laughs> and I loved it. And I still love it because the fruit, the payoff is so amazing. Don't begrudge the labor of thinking over a text. Well, there's a, there's a tip-off in the Greek. Um, the word for prune here, kathire, is the word for clean and can be used both ways. And the word for clean in verse 3 is katharoi and therefore is related to it. And so you're not as boggled as you would be in English between prune and clean as you would be between kathire and katharoi in Greek. And so it's more clear that he's got a play on words going here. And he really does want to say the father prunes every fruitful branch and already you are pruned. Already you are clean. Now, those exact words are used in chapter 13 when he's washing the disciples' feet. This is an amazing parallel. John 13, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. He comes to Peter. Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says one of the most amazing things in verse 8 or verse... Yeah, Eight, if I do not wash you, you have no share in me. They're going to wash my feet. You said, if I don't wash you, there's no union between me and you. That's really serious. So, so Peter, I love him, said, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. And then Jesus said, the one who has bathed doesn't need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, which is an exact quote from chapter 15, verse 3. Already, you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who would betray him, and that's why he said, not all of you are clean. So what's the point of verse 3 in John 15 and of this passage in chapter 13, for that matter? Already you are completely clean. Already you are pruned. Already you are made suitable. Yet I'm going to prune you, and I'm going to wash you. 
Your acceptance of being washed and being pruned is the sign you're already washed and you're already pruned. That's what he said to Peter. You don't let me wash you, you're not mine. You let me wash you, you're clean, totally. The willingness in your life to be pruned, trustingly, humbly, meekly, under the vine dresser's cutting is the sign you're cut, you're clean, you're whole. It's done. Already. Then it says, by my word, or because of my word. Verse 3 at the end of the verse. You're already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And the word here is the totality of his teaching. Come in the flesh, God of gods, without sin, dying for his sheep, rising from the dead. You believe that? Believe this word and a connection is forged. Believing him is the God-given connection with the vine. Believing this word is the joining of God that he creates between the branch and the vine, (coughs) between disciples and Jesus. And in the instant, in the instant that this union happens through faith as we experience it and new birth as God performs it, union happens and we are clean already, totally. John chapter 5 verse 24 ramps it up. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, remember, made clean by the word, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life already. Death is over. Judgment is over. You're already home. Judgment is behind you. Death is behind you. Pruning is behind you. Cutting off is behind you. Your whole complete pruned beyond judgment already. Amazing. That's why the stage was not yet set. In verse 2, he had to put one more thing in place before the imperative came in verse 4 because he wanted us to hear an imperative the way Christians hear imperatives if they're biblically taught. How do Christians hear imperatives to do things? Abide in me. Why? You must. If you don't, you will be burned. But I am already pruned. Yes, you are. The Father's pruning, the Father's cleansing are fitting you to be what you are. Starting to sound Pauline. 
1 Corinthians 5, 7. Cast out the old leaven because you are unleavened. Become what you are is the distinctly Christian thing Jesus wanted to hear, wanted us to hear. Become what you are. You are already clean. You're already pruned. Now, receive the pruning and receive the cleansing as the evidence that you are pruned and you are clean. Because if you push this away, Peter, you have no part in me. (coughs) The father (coughs) is not wasting his time when he prunes. I want to stress this because vain reasonings of human beings take us in wrong directions over and over again. If you reason like this, well, if I'm clean in Christ, and if I'm pruned in Christ, and if I'm beyond judgment in Christ, I don't need that kind of discipline from the Father. That is vain, wicked, demonic reasoning. How common such things are. You will meet them in the people that you try to teach. You will meet this kind of reasoning. And they will try to say, it doesn't even make sense what you're saying. If you're already clean and already pruned and already beyond judgment, you don't need any disciplining. You don't need any pruning. I think, well, that's your talk, not God's talk. I will listen to God talk, not your talk. And I will submit to God's pruning to give evidence that I am pruned. I will undergo his cleansing to give evidence that I'm clean. I will Press on to make him my own because he has made me his own. I will go with the Bible. And I will try to get down deep into these things. And by abiding in him and obeying this imperative, prove to be a true disciple. Which leads us now to the question, what is abiding? I said to to Marshall, if I if I were preaching on this at Bethlehem a year ago, two years ago, I would have given, I'm sure, five sermons to this text. <laughs> because there's so many questions to be answered, which which may leave some of you frustrated that I didn't dwell on the part you wanted me to dwell on as long as I should have. That's an excuse. I think the answer, the clearest answer to what it means to abide is found in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. I've talked to you about abiding. I've talked to you about the vine. I've talked to you about branches. I've talked to you about the vine dresser. I've talked to you about all these things that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full I've given you all these teachings, all these instructions about what it means to be in the vine and 
The reason is because I want you to enjoy with my enjoying. I want your enjoying to be my enjoying. Is that what it says? That my joy, this is so different. This is so different than just saying, I want you to be happy. I want you to have joy. The Holy Spirit will make you a happy person. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Have it. So different. So more, more, more than that. It says, my joy. This is the infant, eternal Son of God. With infinite capacities for delight. Enjoying everything that ought to be enjoyed by God. Saying, I just taught you so that that, my experience, not a copy of it, would be in you. This is what I think union means. This is what I think union means. My joy becoming what you experience. It's a miracle. Beyond comprehension, it's what God does in putting the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ in us so that he rejoices and that joy in us becomes our enjoying. The reason your joy can now be full, I mean, ask ask this. Do you think that when it says, my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. You think that means those are separate? Like he puts his joy in me, it's here. And then I got my joy. And when his is here, mine's good. That is not the way it is conceived. Rather, you no longer enjoy merely with your joy. You now have my joy in you, and you enjoy whatever you enjoy with my joy of it. So when I say, abide in me, Jesus talking. When Jesus says, abide in me, I mean, keep on enjoying with my joy. Don't disconnect and start enjoying with your joy. You are in me as the source of all, and I am in you as your all. Receive me and my joy as your joy. Welcome me and my joy as your joy. Thirst for me and my joy as your joy. Hunger for me and my joy as your joy. Eat me and my joy as your joy. Drink me and my joy as your joy. And that's what it will mean to abide, to remain in him. For his joy to become your joy. Now there's more ways to say it. Look at verses 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me. So now we're talking love, not joy. See if the same thing works. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. 
abide in my love. What does that mean? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, the key, I think, to unpacking the implications of that statement, verse 10, is to ask, what's the Father's commandment? If you keep my Father's commandments, my commandments, what's the commandment? Verse 12, this is the commandment, that you love one another. All the Father's commandments, all my commandments are summed up in love each other. So what does it mean to abide in my love? It means, just like abide in my joy, keep on loving with my love. God has poured out his love into us by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5. We love with his love. Welcome my love as your love for people. Drink my love as your love for me. Live in my love as the flow of your love. When I say here in verse 10, I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love, I mean when I love in obedience to my father, my loving is the experience of his loving. You agree with that? I mean, that makes sense? So when he says in verse 10, I'm abiding in my Father's love as I keep his commandments, meaning I'm, I'm resting in my Father's love obediently, and as I love, he's loving through me with his love. I, I love with his love. So now you do that to me. You do that to me, obediently getting me in love with my love. That's the sum of all my obedience anyway. So I think abiding in the vine or abiding in Christ is keep on enjoying being loved by Jesus and love with his love. Keep on enjoy, enjoying the, the joy that Jesus has by enjoying with his joy. Perhaps one last observation. Verse 7 prayer. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In verse 16, it clarifies what we're asking for mainly, namely fruit bearing. Verse 16, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So I've appointed you to bear fruit so that when you ask for things, you get them. Because what you're asking for is fruit bearing. Fruit is in the foreground, and the fruit in the foreground is love and joy. Praying for people means praying that they would enjoy Christ with the joy of Christ, that they would enjoy God with the joy of Christ, that they would have the peace of Christ. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. They would have the peace of Christ, that they would have the love 
of Christ. I, I, I've often come to this text and struggled with, now is the fruit here love, joy, peace, or is the fruit here people? It never hit me until preparing for this, I thought, well, what do you mean people? People what? People who love with the love of Christ. People who rejoice with the joy of Jesus. People who have peace with the peace of Jesus. Converted people. In other words, whenever you're praying for fruit, you don't just want people. You want people experiencing salvation, experiencing union, which, and the union is love. The union is peace. The union is joy. So I don't have to choose anymore. In fact, I can't choose. It doesn't make any sense to choose between you praying for the fruit of love, joy, peace, or you praying for the fruit of people converted. Well, I want people to know that love. I want people to know that peace. I want people to know that joy. And I want to know it more deeply and fully myself. So the point of verse 7 and this prayer, why introduce prayer is this. My father is not passive. He's the vine dresser. He does not waste his time while he is pruning. You should not be passive in your abiding, but you should pray. Pray for more fruit. Pray for more deep abiding, which is the way we're going to close in just a minute. I want you to pray in this conference. Oh, God, make me more deeply rooted. Grant more sweet experience of my joy being your joy and my love being your love and my peace being your peace. Prayer is my part while pruning is the vine dresser's part and the vine is supplying. This is a little bit of a correction for the Keswick teaching that Hudson Taylor was so influenced by, which was so passive in its approach to abiding. Pray, pray. Because you know how easy vain reasonings tell you Wait a minute, every prayer is an act of unbelief then. If you were enjoying the vine to the full, you wouldn't need to ask for more. So your very asking is an indictment of your unbelief. Yeah, I suppose so. But it is also an act of faith looking away from ourselves to the only one who could possibly take us deeper into him. Let me close like this. I want to relate what we've seen just briefly in closing to the larger theological conversation about whether sharing in Christ, abiding in the vine, being united to Christ, rejoicing with his joy is a merging of our nature with God or our essence with God. It's a long, old conversation, and it's based on 2 Peter 1.4. We become partakers of the divine nature. And I want to read you a quote from Jonathan Edwards, which I think is exactly right. This union expressed in Scripture by the saints being made partakers of the divine nature and having God dwelling in them and they in God, not the saints 
are made partakers of the, not that the saints are made partakers of the essence of God and so are godded with God or Christed with Christ according to the abominable and blasphemous language and notions of some heretics, but to use the scripture phrase, they are made partakers of God's fullness, Ephesians 3.19, that is, of God's spiritual beauty and happiness, holiness, according to the measure and capacity of the creature. In other words, when a vine is united to the branches, the branches do not become the all-providing vine. Nor do they become the vine dresser. Nevertheless, how do they become one? And here's what I think we've seen in that John 15 is so crucial. We have Christ's life, his joy, his peace, his love, not just because we're in him, but because he is in us with them. We experience his joy, his peace, his love, so that my personality, my experiences of peace, my experiences of loving, my experiences of being glad, now become his being glad in me, his loving in me, his being peaceful in me. But that's not a sharing of essence, but it is a sharing of nature. He is by nature infinitely calm, by nature infinitely loving, by nature infinitely happy. And that becomes mine in me and I in him. Therefore, I urge you, abide in him. That is, keep on enjoying him and his joy as your joy. Keep on enjoying him and his peace as your peace. Keep on enjoying him and his loving as your loving. And ask him, ask him in prayer, in this conference, ask the vine dresser to cause you whatever it costs to be filled with all the fullness of God. Father, that's my prayer for myself and I pray it for all of us now that you would grant us the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and depth and length and breadth and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding and be filled with the fullness of God. That God's own love would become our loving God's own peace would become our peace and God's own joy would become our joy. I ask this in his name. Amen.